Back um, more years ago now, and I guess I'd care to count, when I graduated from college, I took a um, position with a bank as a traveling auditor. Traveling auditor. Every week, I was out of the office uh, conducting an audit on one of the bank's customers. A couple times a month, I would uh, be able to get on an airplane and fly to some part of this beautiful country and spend a week or two conducting an audit. And uh, in those days, that was really exciting for a young country boy to grow up. And the first time I'd ever flown was in connection with that job. And I'd fly somewhere and be able to stay in a nice hotel and, and eat on an expense account. And I can remember ordering steak every single night. I would have a steak dinner every night I was on the road. But uh, eventually, eating steak every night of the week, believe it or not, gets old. I know that's hard to believe, but it, it eventually will lose its appeal. There's an old proverb that says, familiarity breeds contempt. And even for steak, that is true. When I first started attending seminary, they warned us to be careful. To be careful in the sense that the constant academic uh, handling of the Word of God, that constant contact, even with the Scriptures, can cause your heart to grow cold towards God. Well, these lessons, familiarity breeds contempt, constant contact, even with the Scriptures, can cause your heart to grow cold. These lessons apply to those of us who are growing up in the Christian church or have grown up in Christian families. People who have known about Jesus all of their lives, they've been taught about Him, they know all about Him but they don't know Him. They don't know Him. They're relying upon their external conformity to the Scriptures. They're relying upon their academic understanding of the precepts of Christianity, the knowledge of the Bible stories. Yet they've never made a faith commitment to Christ. In some ways, they're just like the Jews of the first century. Those who were God's chosen people. Who had assumed that because of their position vis-a-vis -vis God as the chosen race, and because of their external works of righteousness, that they were now acceptable before their Creator. Paul addresses the Jews in Romans chapter 2. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bible there. Romans 2. If you are using a pew Bible this morning, you want to turn to page 1126 to find Romans chapter 2. But here in this chapter, Paul is addressing the Jews of the first century and their need for the righteousness of Christ. 
In the first chapter, he has brought the Gentile world, the pagan world, to the bar of justice and completed his indictment of them that they fall short of the glory of God. He is now turning his attention to the chosen people to show them that they too do not have what it takes. That he might then leave the whole world condemned and thus cause them to flee to God's only solution, Jesus Christ. As we work through this text over these weeks, I want to apply it to the church. And I want to apply it particularly to the young people of this church. Those that are growing up within the family of God and have the ability to, to be in constant contact with the things of God, yet in the deceitfulness of your own hearts, you can find that you really don't know Him. You know all about Him, but you do not know Him. So this morning we're going to take up the second two dangers I've entitled this whole chapter 2. One big title for the whole chapter. The Danger of Growing Up Christian. The Danger of Growing Up Christian. And this morning I want to take up two, the second two dangers that Paul has here for us. The second two dangers of growing up Christians. And I want to do it so that we will realize that even good kids need Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 1, chapter 2, Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I said uh, last week in introducing this that there are really three big ideas. I'll just keep repeating them to you so that you get them in your head and I'll hopefully get them in mine. And the three big ideas of this whole chapter 2, the three big dangers are first to rely upon our outward morality to make us right with God. The reliance upon outward morality, that was a problem for the Jewish nation and it is a problem for those growing up in the church. Second problem, and begins in verse 17, is the, the problem of relying upon our religion to make us right with God. The Jews relied upon the law, that was the essence of their religion, yet that would not make them right, right with God. And finally is the danger beginning in verse 25 of relying upon there for them circumcision, but I'm calling it national identity. That is what made a Jew a Jew was the circumcision. It is the danger of relying upon your national identity to make you right with God. So not morality, not religion, not national identity. None of those things make you right with God. 
We're working here on the morality side. Why does morality not work? Last week, verse 1, we said that that first danger under the morality heading is the danger of condemning others, verse 1. The danger of condemning others. That is the danger and wickedness of, of condemning and judging others for that which you yourself do. That's what Paul says. You condemn for that which you do. Your morality doesn't make it. The second danger that he has for us this morning in verses 2 and 4, and that's why I really want to dig into the text here, is the danger of scorning God. The danger of scorning God. Beginning here in verse 2, Paul says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Paul enlists the agreement of his Jewish audience at this point. He says, he, he, he refers to something that is commonly known, commonly held together. We know, that is, we as a group, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon people who practice the kind of stuff that he has been just enumerating in chapter 1. No disagreement here. No argument here. The Jewish people, his Jewish readers would be saying, that's right, Paul. That's right. They deserve the judgment of God. It falls on them. They deserve what they get. And Paul will now take this common consensus that he has elicited and he will turn it back on them through a series of three rhetorical questions in verses 3 and 4. He will turn it back with a series of questions that are designed to uncover and to reveal the Jewish thinking that actually scorns God, the very God they say they love. How does he do that? Well, he does it, as I say, beginning in verse 3 with the first question. He says, and do you suppose this, O man? And he is speaking rhetorically here. He is speaking rhetorically. Do you suppose... Logizomai is the Greek verb. It has the idea of calculating or estimating or figuring the odds, if you will. What he's saying to them is, uh, is that uh, do you of all men, that is a Jew who knows God rightly judges sin, do you think that you've got it all figured out? That you've calculated the angles to the point where you can somehow evade God's judgment? Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Are you such a gambler? Are you so smart that you figured a way out? You idiot. That's the vernacular that goes in there. Okay? The answer to the rhetorical question, you idiot. Of course not. You've just said in, in verse 2 that you know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon people who do these kinds of things and you think you can do them and get away with it? <laughs> That's the secret hope of every hypocrite, isn't it? That's the secret hope of every hypocrite. That somehow God will, will lower the standard of judgment when it comes to them. Right? That the bar will be this high for everybody else, but when it comes to me, somehow God will... Let it down low. Let me trip over it. You fool. You idiot. Second question, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Well, he says or here, by the way, he's not proposing an alternative question. He's just building upon this, this uh, whole uh, inquiry 
this this uh, series of rhetorical questions here. What he's doing is it's like it's like a crescendo. It's growing and growing until it actually reaches verse five. He's stripping away the veneer of self-righteousness. Second question, do you think lightly or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Translated, are you not by your own hypocritical involvement in the very same sins you condemn in others, holding the kindness, tolerance and patience of God in contempt? That's what he's telling them. He talks here about riches, verse 4. This word riches governs the other three uh, benefits that uh, come to them from God. The riches, that is, His kindness, forbearance, and patience. The idea here is, is that, uh, that the Jews had come to, to, to think that God had somehow suspended the infliction of punishment upon them, restrained His execution of wrath, because of their righteousness. And he's saying, is that what you really think? Do you think lightly of what he's done for you? Do you, do you think he's given you these things because that you don't deserve the, the judgment that's coming? They're so used to taking the goodness of God for granted. They failed to consider the real reason that God has has poured on them the riches of His kindness, His forbearance, His patience. The idea of holding back His judgment. What Paul is saying, Paul is saying to them here, here is, that, is that they have taken for granted the fact that God has not snuffed out their life the moment they deserved it and instead has poured forth His goodness on them and they have now assumed that that's because they're all right with God. That's what sinners do. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God spoke to Adam. He says, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely what? Die. And Adam did die spiritually. He was separated from his Creator, but he didn't die physically instantly. And so for all the children of Adam from that time forward, that's kind of the motif that we operate under. We're naturally gamblers. You can see that, by the way, in little children, right? Little kids are gamblers by heart. You tell them not to touch something, and then what do they do? They go over there and they see how close they can get, right? Because they're gamblers. We are gamblers by heart. That is, that we sin and we look around and nothing happens, and then we go, well, maybe really nothing will happen. God pours forth His goodness on us, and all of a sudden we begin to think, well, maybe I'm not so bad after all. Maybe, maybe I don't deserve judgment. Maybe I'm doing okay. They traded upon the mercy of God, regularly flaunting His law and defaming His character. We do too. We trade upon the mercy of God. But when God does bring judgment, we're shocked. We're horrified. We're scandalized. Some even claim that God acts unfairly. Luke 13. Luke records for us a really interesting encounter between Jesus and uh, some of the followers, some of his followers. It says, now on a 
On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Evidently, they were offering sacrifices in the temple, and for whatever reason, we don't know, Pilate unleashed his soldiers and went in and he slaughtered a few of them. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When God does act, we're shocked. We're horrified. We're so used to trading upon the goodness and mercy of God in assuming that because He's so good to us that we must be doing all right, that when something changes, our whole world gets turned upside down. To think lightly of His riches, verse 4. To think lightly of His riches. It's, it means to underestimate their significance. To underestimate their significance. And, and ultimately to underestimate the significance of the one who gives them. To scorn the gift is to scorn the gift giver. To despise the God who gives these good gifts. That's what Paul is asking them here. It'd be kind of like this if you had a birthday party. Imagine this. You had a birthday party. Your friends are all invited, right? And throw you a big birthday party and they've got all these gifts they purchased for you. So somebody hands you the gift and you unwrap it and you take a look at it and you go, what's this piece of junk? Can you throw it away? Right? How would that go down? Not so good, right? Not so good. That's the idea here of to think lightly of the riches of what God has poured out. His kindness, His forbearance, His patience, His holding back of His wrath that you, are in, that you justly deserve. The very fact that He doesn't snuff you out the moment you sin. You think lightly of Him. Not knowing, this is the third question by the way, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. This is not a statement of ignorance, by the way. This is a, a, a rather an expansion of their indictment. It's, it has the idea of not considering. When he says not knowing. It's not that they didn't know. It's that they didn't think about it. They didn't consider the fact. Third question, don't you realize that in withholding punishment, God is trying to lead you to repentance? The purpose of God's kindness to the Jew, the purpose of God's kindness to you this morning is to lead you to repentance. That's why He is good to you. It is not an excuse for your sin. It is an opportunity for you to see the goodness of your God and to turn to Him in faith. To repent, to... to um, to change your mind with regard to the direction of your life and the idea that you can live for yourself and to, and to say, God, that is wicked to turn my back on the most kind and gracious Creator of the universe and instead to say, I'm a, I'm gonna, I love you and I'm going to follow you. Why is good, God good to people? 
He's good to people to lead them to himself. That has a purpose. It's amazing. It's condemning to recognize that people trade on the mercy of God and willfully refuse his offer of salvation. The God that gives them so much. The God that affords them an opportunity of repentance. In the day you sin, you shall surely what? Die. From the moment the first sin snuffed out. That's what we deserve. Yet, the very fact that we're all sitting here this morning speaks of the mercy of God, doesn't it? Doesn't it speak of His forbearance? Doesn't it speak of His patience? Doesn't it speak of His kindness to you? He could have killed you. should have killed you. Yet He hasn't. That's not an invitation to go on sinning. That's not a you know, the good housekeeping seal of approval to say, hey, my life is okay. God didn't snuff me out. I must be doing all right. These Jews of the first century were blinded. They were blinded into believing that it was the Gentiles who were the ones who really needed to repent. It was those outside the people of God. They're the ones who really need to repent. It's all those people out there in, in the city of Upland, right? They're the wicked sinners who need to repent. We here, you know, we're doing okay. God is good to us. God's gracious dealing with you is for the purpose of teaching you your need for repentance. It's to draw you to Him. It's so that you might love Him rather than perversely see His blessings as somehow a, a reward that you deserve for your goodness, your righteousness, your favored status, your moral uprightness. The idea that since you haven't been abandoned to the wickedness of a degrading life of immorality that somehow God is pleased with you? That God is showering His blessings upon you? Is baseless. It's potentially damning. The very purpose of God's kindness to you, the very purpose of God's forbearance and patience is not to make you self-satisfied. It's to bring you to conversion. You read chapter 1 and... Have you reflected upon the fact that you have been spared the, much of the vice that is listed there in that chapter? You need to realize you've got nothing to brag about. You have nothing to brag about. The absence of vice is not the possession of virtue. You can mark that one down. The absence of vice is not the possession of virtue. The fact that you might not do this or that or the other thing does not make you right before God. He's being kind to you. He's being 
patient with you. He's forbearing against your sin. Seeking to draw you to Himself. You know, one of the greatest heartaches a parent can know is to have a child to grow up and not follow after God. Through the years I've seen it and I've heard of it. And I'll tell you, I fear for the youth of this congregation in a group this size. There are some among you who are treading on the grace of God. You are not okay with God. You've experienced the riches of His kindness, of His patience, His forbearance with you. Yet your relationship with Him is external and hypocritical. You look down on those outside. You judge those outside the church and simultaneously you commit either the same or comparable vices yourself. Your heart is far from God. Far from God. Moms and dads, it's hard to face the possibility that your kids may not be redeemed. It is painful to think that those whom you've held in your arms since the beginning, you've brought up, you've sacrificed for, you've poured your life into, that they may not be walking with God. It's a hard thing to face. Coupled with that is the pressure, sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle. To have, you know, the perfect Christian family, right, where we got it all together. We show up on Sunday morning and everybody thinks, you know, we've got it all together. Our kids all fall in line. You know, everything looks perfect on the outside. The danger of that is that we begin to, as parents, focus on the externals ourselves. We forget about the heart. We become interested in the behaviors. If we can just make them look Christian, then people will think they're Christian and they'll think well of us. Inside, full of dead men's bones. We have to be willing to face reality. We must face reality. James Boyce, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, gone home to be with the Lord now. I think he said it well. He said, Jesus does not excuse us. He forgives us. He calls us sinners. Yet he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The most important thing in life is to know that Jesus is able to save you from sin. The second most important thing is to know that you require it. That you require it. One of the dangers of growing up Christian is developing a scorn for God. Third is the danger of impenitence. Verse 5. The danger of impenitence. But because of your stubbornness, Paul says, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. William Plummer, in his commentary on Romans, 
from the 19th century. He said, no more fearful thought has ever reached the human mind than is found in this verse. There is nothing more fearful than thinking about the possibility that you are somehow storing up wrath for yourself. Paul says it's because of your stubbornness, sclerotes in the Greek, we get the word sclerosis, that's the word I'm looking for, arterial sclerosis, right? Hardness, that's the one we're looking for. It's the idea of a hardness, a hardness of heart. Because of your stubborn, your hard and unrepenting heart, Paul says you're storing up wrath for yourself. Now remember, he's got a Jewish audience in mind here. When he uses this Greek word and he evokes this image, it immediately should draw and did draw, I believe, the first century Jewish mind back to their own ancient history. This speaks of the nation's rebellion in the wilderness. In fact, the same terminology is used. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll want to go to page... Um, 194. Go to, go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. I think Paul is reflecting on this chapter as he's writing this here. Deuteronomy 9. Look at verse 4. Moses is saying, this, you know, Deuteronomy is is written to the, to the next generation. They've survived the 40 years of wilderness wandering. They're on the edge of the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan River and to enter to take possession. And so Moses is now speaking to them again. He's kind of, he's kind of a second, that's what Deuteronomy, a second giving of the law. He says here in verse 4, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, quote, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, close quote, but it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. But it is because of their wickedness. Verse 6. Know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stubborn people. A stubborn people. Look down to verse 13. And the Lord spoke further with me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stubborn people. Same word. They're obviously stubborn and a little thick because three times in a row he has to tell them it's not because of your or righteousness that you're getting all of this good stuff, right? Well, they're not any thicker or denser than we are. Verse 24, this is their real state. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. So I fell down before the Lord the forty days and nights which I did because the Lord had said He would destroy you. 
And I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, God, do not destroy your people or even your inheritance for whom you have uh, redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at their wickedness of their sin. Otherwise, the land from which you had brought us up may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them. And because he hated them, he brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people. Even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by great power in your outstretched arm. Hard-hearted, stubborn, unrepentant. These were the people of Israel. Go back to Romans 2. You know, this issue of hardening your heart is serious. Three times the writer of the Hebrews warns them against hardening their heart. Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Hebrews 3, 13-15, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. Hebrews 4, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts over and over again. Do not harden your hearts. To harden your heart is the most dangerous activity I think you can engage in. Each time truth is presented to us, we either accept it or we reject it. When we reject it, we add a layer of hardness to our hearts, the Scripture says. We're not left morally neutral. You will not leave this room morally neutral today. You will be changed. Every single one of you, me, we will be changed Today, by our time together, we will walk out of here closer to God or further from Him. We will not remain unchanged. When we resist truth, it, it thickens a shell over our hearts so that the next time we hear truth, it's more difficult to receive it. Life is not a video game. Where we can have a do-over, right? If we make a mistake. Save the game, go back to the beginning, you know. There's a very real sense that in each and every day we are in the process of becoming who we will ultimately be. A lover and follower of God? Or a hater of God and a blasphemer? You are either for me or you are against me. Jesus will leave no one in the middle. A Kevlar vest, right? Kevlar, the bulletproof vest. It's made up of a, of a series of layers of densely woven fibers. 
One layer of the fibers is insufficient to stop shrapnel. But when you add layer upon layer of these densely woven fibers, it, it creates a material that is tough enough to protect the vital organs of the body and stop shrapnel from an explosion. Well, in a similar way, our heart accumulates layers of Kevlar when we resist the truth of God. And when we do it ongoing over and over again, we come into the preaching of the Word Sunday after Sunday and we daydream or our minds go off somewhere else or we're doodling on our study sheet or whatever it is we're doing, what we're adding is layers of bulletproof material over our heart to the point someday where the truth will no longer penetrate. Verse 5, because of your hardness, your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. When? In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's speaking here about the wrath to be revealed in the end. Specifically, the great white throne, Revelation 20, when the wicked will be judged and cast into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This concept of wrath, by the way, this day of wrath is very much a part of, of the Jewish Old Testament. This will resonate with them. This is the, it's, a, it's even a technical term for the judgment aspect of the day of the Lord. The prophets speak of this future period of wrath that is to come. Almost all the prophets talk about it. It includes the events of the seven-year tribulation and it culminates in that great white throne. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that's the day we're talking about, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But Lord, I was in church since I was a child. I grew up through the Iwana program and the Sunday schools and I memorized the Word of God and I went on missions trips and I did this and I did that. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Plummer says this is the most frightening thought. Storing up wrath for yourself. Treasuring it up like a retirement account, deposit after deposit, right? A little bit over a long period of time. We must not be deceived just because God does not judge immediately. That does not mean wrath is not piling up against you. Like water behind a great dam. Someday. The dam will burst. And you will be swept away in the deluge. Every minute, the mountain of wrath grows, increasing the pile of debt against you.
if by God's sovereign grace and power, you will surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, He will pay your debt. He will be your substitute. He will absorb the wrath that has been accumulated against your soul and take it upon Himself. And give you His righteousness. That's the message that Paul has for his first century Jewish brothers and sisters. That's the message that he has for you this morning. You who have tasted the good things of God. yet still have not committed yourself to Him by faith. Let me pray. O God, our Father, please make Your Word effectual in our hearts. May Your Holy Spirit drive it deep. Break through the crust, the scale, the callousness, the Kevlar that surrounds our hearts to receive the truth. Rescue, dear Lord, those among us who are make-believe Christians, both young and old, who know all about Christ and yet do not know Christ. Father, please, please deliver us from the wrath to come. For Jesus' sake, Amen.